All right, well, this morning we continue in, in this little exploration of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 4, uh, verse 14, I think it is, 13. Uh, a section that fits together, but I'm also trying to take in little pieces thematically uh, to capture the ideas that are in there. This morning we're going to look in particular at chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, which seem to emphasize the theme of hardness of heart and don't let your hearts be hardened like Israel's in the wilderness. This follows on uh, last week where we talked about the urgency of listening today and responding and hopefully leads into next week, which is pursuing and looking for the rest that God offers to us in and through Jesus Christ. So this morning, Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 19, let me read this for us. God's very own living word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. As always, may he write it upon our hearts and may it bear fruit in our lives. As we come before it, let me pray for us. Again, our God and Father in heaven, we come before you. We ask your blessing as we come before your word. We ask that you would speak to us and that as your word goes out, you would fulfill your very own promise that when your word goes out, it does not come back to you empty or void, but instead accomplishes everything that you purpose for it and is successful in the very things for which you send it. For us, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us here this morning so that we might have eyes that see and ears that hear the things that you would have us see and hear from your word this morning. And in so doing, you would make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we might walk in accordance with what it teaches us. Father, we pray this as always, in the matchless, wonderful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We like to talk politics around here and and history, and more than a couple times, maybe as much as a handful or more of times around here, whether at lunch or on a Wednesday night or just hanging out together, the topic of the American Revolution has come up. 
And the question, if you were there, if you had lived 240 years ago, would you have been a patriot, a rebel against king and, and crown and country? Or would you have been a loyalist? Would you have been loyal to king and country? A patriot or a Tory? Which would you have been and why? It's an interesting question. How do we decide something like that? The easy reaction for most of us, hey, America. I'm an American. Of course I'd be a patriot. But then the easy response to that is, well, if that's so, why aren't you a rebel today against the government that exists, which is so much worse when it comes to taxation and property rights and liberty, so many other issues? Well, an easy response to that is, well, the real issue wasn't taxation back then. The issue was taxation without representation, not being involved in the decision-making process. They were imposed without us being part of the process, without having a voice in Parliament. And you can continue to go back and forth on those various debates. We can add the, the other factor. What about the role of a Christian? What is the role of a Christian in such a situation? How do we apply texts like Romans 13 and its instruction about our relationship to our rulers? Is a revolution ever a just war? What is a just war? When is revolution right and when is it wrong? How is revolution to be done and when? Makes for an interesting conversation. It's a little bit anachronistic out of time because it's 240 years ago, but it's an interesting discussion. And it's different from other kinds of national conflicts like the, the Civil War. Look, the Civil War, if you lived in the South, you were a rebel. If you lived in the North, you were for the Union. It's just the way it was. But during the American Revolution, every colony had a mixture of people who were loyal to the crown and people who rebelled against it. And so it made for a very, very difficult decision that could rupture even families. There's a tiny branch of my family tree that goes back that far. And, and I know that there were some who supported the revolution and served in the army and some who hightailed it to Canada. <laughs> um, conflict within the same family. It made it a very difficult question for those people to answer in that time. What do I do? Do I rebel or don't I? Because so much was at stake. We've heard the phrase about the, the founding fathers of America, that they pledged their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor. That's not just a phrase. They really pledged those things. They put their very lives at risk. They spent money or had their possessions confiscated. If they lost, their honor was at stake. Are you a Benedict Arnold? Despised by history? If you know British history, are you Guy Fawkes? Made fun of every year for decades, if not hundreds of years? Or are you George Washington or Thomas Paine or Patrick Henry? One's honored and one's not. Their reputations were at stake. It was a very, very personal, existential decision that these people made. Very serious, not theoretical, not just political, not just economics. And it couldn't have been a quick or simple or an easy decision. If I'm going to do this, it's a personal commitment that I'm making to one side or the other. And that personal commitment matters. And it has consequences. 
I bring all that up because partly we've talked about it before, but partly because it relates to what we're talking about this morning. Puts a little bit of perspective on Psalm 95, which was our Old Testament reading this week, and Numbers 13 and 14, which was our Old Testament reading last week. So when we, when we read about Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, we think, shouldn't think of it as some sort of civil war or some sort of political opposition, infighting like in modern political elections. Rather, Israel's rebellion was serious. It was a life and death decision that they were making in the wilderness. It was a personal, existential decision for them. Not unlike those who lived 240 years ago in the American colonies, it was a decision, it was an act that required some very serious, personal commitment one way or the other. So we can't just look at it as Israel complaining and grumbling. They did that, for sure. They were good at it. Too good. Incurring God's wrath. It wasn't just about Israel complaining or grumbling. They were making a personal commitment. And think about this. They were making a personal life commitment to rebel against God himself. To go to war if you will, against God and the leaders he had appointed for them. Moses and Aaron, and the only two men who would support them, Caleb and Joshua. Now think about it that way. (laughs) That puts a little perspective on what the writer to Hebrews is writing in this letter. The repeated warnings in this letter then are very serious and need to be taken seriously. They're matters of life and death and matters of eternal consequence. So again, what I want to do this morning in our examination here of chapter 3, verse 7 to 4.13 is look at this warning. Don't harden your hearts. What does that warning mean? Last week we talked about the urgency of hearing and listening to the voice of Jesus, Jesus, his message to come to him, to repent and believe. Next week we'll look at the idea of entering God's rest. But this week... And we need to hear this every now and then. Don't harden your hearts. Don't be like Israel in its rebellion against God as they stood on the verge of the promised land. And I want to do this this morning. First, I want to explore the the text itself and its relationship to the story in Numbers 13 and 14 about the 12 spies and scouts and the nation's response. Then how Psalm 95 kind of plays upon that, look at the text itself and those things, and then finish with some, hopefully some application for us in our lives today. So, hard-hearted rebellion. This is what the writer is warning us against in section, uh, the section from chapter 3, 7 to 4, 13. An extended commentary, if you will, about Psalm 95 and an exhortation based upon and from that psalm. But Psalm 95 itself remembers and comments upon Numbers 13 and 14. You've got to know this background to understand where the author to the Hebrews is coming from. So let's go back and just recall this story in Numbers, the Old Testament reading last week. Remember that Israel has been brought out of Egypt by God's mighty hand, rescued from bondage and slavery, 
led through the Red Sea as if on dry ground, taken to Sinai, the mountain where they received God's law, heard his voice, and have now been led by God in a pillar of cloud and fire to the borders of the land that he had promised to give them. And then God tells Moses to select 12 men, one from each tribe, to go and spy out or scout out the land. And they do so. Forty days they spend camped out, or going through the land. They come back with a report. Yes, indeed, this is, a, this is an amazing land. It's filled with cities. It's filled with people. It's filled with milk and honey. Those are ideas of abundance and prosperity. Milk in one season, honey in another. Look at the fruit that we brought back. This is a land of abundance and prosperity. But 10 of the 12 came back with another report. Man, there's a lot of people here. They're tall. They're strong. They live in fortified cities. They're too strong for us to go up against. In contrast to that, Caleb and Joshua say, no, we can go in. The Lord has, if you will, destined these people for destruction. They are ours. The Lord will lead us in. We can trust the Lord who is with us. But the people refuse to listen to Caleb and to Joshua. And their response to me is so striking. It's easy to pass over as you read through the story. Their response is, one, let's stone these guys, Caleb and Joshua. Think of that. Not, we don't just disagree with you. We're going to stone you. We're going to kill you for your good report of trusting in, in God. And not only that, let's get rid of Moses and Aaron and pick, us, pick ourselves a new leader and go back to Egypt. That's a revolution, folks. That's a rebellion. We're kicking out our leaders. In fact, we're killing them and we're going our own way. Better to back to go what we had, bondage and slavery, than follow these men and their God. That is a brazen revolution, particularly after what these people have seen. Again, they were protected from the ten plagues that afflicted the Egyptians. The firstborn saved them from the angel of death that, so that it passed over their homes. They plundered Egypt's wealth as they left the country. They crossed the Red Sea as if it was dry land. They got bread from heaven. They got water from a rock. They got quail from God. They heard God speak at Sinai. They received his law. Time after time after time, God had shown himself to them, shown his power to them, shown his might to them, protected them, fed them, watched over them, and they still didn't trust in him. Think of it. They, they, they tell us the number of fighting men that came out of Egypt, and it was in the hundreds of thousands. That means this nation as a whole was well over a million people. A million people. And how many trusted God? Four. 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 That's a revolution. God resolves to beginning in with Moses and his descendants, but Moses intercedes for the people. But still the people have to be punished for their rejection of God, their rebellion against him. So God pronounces that anyone over the age of 20 is going to die 
in the wilderness. None of them will enter into the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. Wow, what a story. (laughs) What a history. Now, centuries later, Psalm 95 is written. It's a psalm that calls upon people to come and worship. And you heard it. I think we sang it a couple weeks ago, right? Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. Part of that psalm. There's no superscript that it was written by David, but Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 7, attributes it to him. We read that it's probable that this psalm was used in the weekly liturgy in the synagogue as part of the call to worship to come in. Come, sing, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise with songs of praise because our Lord is a great God, a king above all gods, holding creation in his hands because he made it and it's his. We in turn are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So let's worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker. Come into his presence, says the psalm, but don't come in like Israel. There's this idea of being poised, ready to enter in. They were poised and ready to in and rejected the call. The psalm is saying, you now are poised to come and enter into worship. Don't be like Israel. Don't harden your hearts. Come in willingly with joy. Don't arrive like they did. Don't harden your hearts. They heard his voice and rebelled. But today, if you hear his voice, don't be like them. Don't put God to the test. Or you, like them, will not be allowed to enter into God's rest. This is the background that the writer to Hebrews is pulling from to make his case in chapters 3 and 4. He quotes from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, and uses it to offer a similar call with a similar warning. Today, if you hear his voice, come. Don't be like Israel who hardened their hearts. The heart of of his application of these passages to the Hebrew readers of this letter, but to all believers, because as long as today is today, this call goes out. The heart of the problem is unbelief. That's how he bookends his exhortation after he quotes from Psalm 95, verses 12 and 19. We have the words... The little phrase, take care, at the beginning of verse 12, it could be translated and maybe should be arguably translated for the purposes of seeing the, uh, the way the writer bookends things. See to it. See to it, brothers, that there isn't any among you who has an evil, unbelieving heart. And then he echoes the idea then in verse 19. See to it, or so we see, that they're unable to enter because of unbelief. See to it that you don't have unbelief because we see what happens when there is unbelief. That's what he's saying. A a nice little device the author is using. They were unable to enter God's rest, the promised land, because of unbelief. Unbelief leads you away from God and prevents you from entering into his rest. Here I think we can... Recall what we talked about a little bit last week. Last week, True faith being the, the three things building upon one another, knowledge, assent, and trust. True faith being that, that those three elements. We know what it is, we agree with it, 
and we put our trust in it. And that true faith is a faith that results in works of faith. And in this case, acting in a way that shows trust in God. That he will do what he said he would do according to his very own promises. True faith knows who God is, knows what God has said, knows what God has done, and knows what he has promised to do. Hears and agrees that these things are right, and then trusts in God and his word and his promises. So what the author is saying here here is, act like, live like you trust in God's word. Act like you trust in him and his promises. Do what he tells you to do. Go where he tells you to go. That's not what Israel did. And he uses Israel as a negative example. They, in verse 15, hardened their hearts when they heard God's voice. Again, quoting from Psalm 95. Verses 16 to 18 have this nice little succession, another great literary device, of open-ended questions followed by rhetorical questions that answer the other question. This is way before Jeopardy. He answers a question in the form of a question. What does he ask? Who are those that hurt and rebelled? Wasn't it all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? In other words, wasn't it all those who had seen all those great things that God had done for them? With whom was God provoked for 40 years? Open-ended question, answered by a rhetorical question. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? They did not repent. They did not seek forgiveness. They went on sinning for another 40 years, continuing to provoke the wrath of God. And so in his wrath, to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who continued in their disobedience. What's the cause of this rebellion? Again, 19, verse 19, it's unbelief. Not hearing, not accepting, not trusting in God and his word. And then the author in this passage ties this unbelief to evil in verse 12, to sin in verses 13 and 17, and to rebellion and disobedience in verses 16 and 18. Ultimately, he ties it to the great consequence of falling away from God. The word we use for this is apostasy. We're going to have more to say about this concept as we go through the letter In fact, you've probably all heard of or talked about or studied chapter 6 about those who fall away. You can't understand chapter 6 without understanding the groundwork that the author is laying here in the early parts of the letter. This is going to help us understand that when we get to it. For now, understand the danger. Unbelief, which is evil, which is sinful, which is rebellion against God leading to disobedience, eventually results in apostasy falling away from God himself. Those part of God's people, like Israel, who nevertheless reject him and turn away from him, are not allowed to enter into his rest. That's a serious warning. That has eternal consequences. The passage is not all about warning, thankfully. 
right in the middle of it, in verses 13 and 14, there's hope. Today, it says, exhort one another, as long as it is called today. And every day is called today, <laughs> until Christ comes. So the author, again, is saying with urgency, now, presently, actively, exhort one another. Teach one another, encourage one another, warn one another, admonish one another, help one another, assist one another, so that none might fall away. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives. Sin is the opposite of truth. Sin lies. Sin is illogical. Our job is to lead one another into truth to righteousness and to do it every day continually, constantly it's a group effort we're in this together I've said this before many times there is no such thing properly as a lone ranger Christian you cannot do this by yourself you cannot do it on your own and you shouldn't do it on your own the call here is to exhort one another you want to do an interesting study, and maybe we should do this at some point, even in a sermon series. Look at the many, many ways Scripture uses the term one another and what it calls us to do together. You have to be part of the body to avoid falling away. And you must be active in that body to avoid falling away. He says, why do we do this? Because... We've come to share in Christ. We all have a share in Christ because we're all in Christ. And so we all have a share in one another as well. We have that share. If indeed, he says, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That same confidence we had when we first came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I think it implies that continuing process of repentance and faith, continually turning to God, seeking His forgiveness, and renewing our trust in Him that we do week in and week out as part of our formal worship. But it's also something, it's part of taking up our cross daily and following Him, being willing to go where He leads and do what He calls us to do. But again, doing it together. Exhort one another as a body. It's urgent. Do it today, as long as it's today. So that means diligence as well. And if you don't have this urgent, diligent desire to do this, you're in danger of falling away. You're in danger of falling under the prey of the lying deceitfulness of sin. Well, that's a quick overview of the passage, some thoughts about what it might mean for us. Well, I think, again, there's an urgency in this part of Hebrews. There's an urgency about the letter in general, but there's an urgency here at the beginning. We cannot be lazy. We can't slack off on our faith. Your salvation and that of your family and that of the church body that you're a part of is vitally important. Following God and being loyal to Him instead of being a rebel against Him as a matter of life and death that has eternal consequences. Are you going to enter the promised land? Are you going to enter his rest? Will you have confidence that God is leading you to that rest? 
that he will defeat those giants in the land, that he will provide you entry into those walled cities that are great and big and strong. Will you trust his work for you, the life and death and resurrection and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? There's an urgency about this. Don't be lazy. Don't be careless. Pursue that rest and pursue it trusting in him. But there's diligence in that urgency as well. We can be urgent without being diligent. Um, John Wooden used to say to his, to his basketball players, be quick but don't hurry. Play fast but don't be in a hurry. Be, be diligent about what you're doing. There's this idea of, uh, that we see in verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That's diligence. That's persistence, keeping after it day after day after day. Today and every day, exhort one another. Today and every day, be diligent about your faith. It's a lifetime commitment, if I can echo and borrow from the, the American fathers, of your lives and your fortunes and your honor. Are you as dedicated as they were to the cause of political revolution for your spiritual well-being? And just like the revolutionaries went around recruiting people to their cause, how many pamphlets do we have? The Federalist Papers, the declarations, the speeches, the sermons even from pulpits, urging people to join in this revolution. How diligent they were. If they were that diligent, how much more should we be diligent? about calling people to join our cause. Be diligent in hearing Jesus speak, all the things we talked about last week. Be diligent in asking, answering God's call to come in and worship Him. Remember, Psalm 95 has that warning, but it also has that call. Enter in, come in and worship with thanksgiving in your hearts for what God has done. Now, we especially do that on Sundays as we come into worship. That's part of our diligence as our Christian walk. Are we diligent about it? Or is it a chore? But we also follow God each and every day, hearing his word, doing what, he tell, doing what it and he tells us to do. We do it in our homes, in our jobs, at school, with neighbors, in every area and aspect of life. Are you diligently following and serving God? Or are you a rebel? It's one or the other. There's no other choice. This is for each and every one of us individually, but it's also a, a, a communal group effort. We do this together, and I think this is so very important. Exhort one another. We're not lone rangers. There should be, and I hope there is, for each and every one of us, an urgent desire to be with God's people. Again, is, is coming to worship on Sunday a burden or a pleasure? Do you get here late and leave early? Or do you seek out an opportunity to study and be with and fellowship and converse with and serve with one another, not just on Sunday morning, but on the other days of the week as well? Exhorting one another in this passage is key. Exhorting one another is key 
to avoiding a hard heart, a rebellious heart, and falling away from God. What opportunities do you take to be in, in the presence of people that will exhort you and who you can exhort in return? Are we in danger of hard hearts through lack of fellowshipping with and being with and being part of the mutual exhortation of God's people? Something to think about in our very individualistic kind of existence as Americans. Exhort one another. Can't be done unless you're together. (laughs) Powerful concept. Well, some thoughts to conclude, and then we'll talk about entering God's rest, Lord willing, next week. What the author of the Hebrews is saying to us, what he's reminding us of, is that God has given us himself, just like he did to the Hebrews, the Israelites in the wilderness. He's spoken to us in his word. He's called us into his presence to worship him and to serve him. He saved us through the work of his Son, namely Jesus, the one who has a name above all names. And he's given us each other, all to help avoid that hard-hearted rebellion that Israel displayed in the wilderness. And avoiding that so that we really may enter into with joy and with thanksgiving in our hearts and with confidence into the rest that he has promised to give us. Are you a servant, hearing God's voice and following him? Or are you a rebel? What you choose makes a difference. And how we exhort one another in that choice makes a difference as well. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father in heaven, we don't want to be those who have hard hearts. We don't want to be those who are rebellious against you. Soften our hearts. Pour out your Holy Spirit among us and into us. Write your law upon hearts of flesh that we might hear it and know it and understand it, believe it, accept it, agree with it, and walk according to what it teaches us. You loved us with a great love and you have been rich in mercy to us. May we never forget that. And may we respond with grateful service to you. And may we seek to put into practice those things that you call us to do in your word, whether it's here in the text before us this morning or all those other exhortations and instructions that you have given to us. But most of all, Father, do not let any here fall away. Preserve and protect us by your word, by your spirit, and in the promises that you have given us in Christ Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.